0: Welcome to Rising with a marvelous show for you today with several guests, including Marianne Williamson. So we'll be very excited to get to that soon. But
1: first, let's start with our top story. All right. Well, Robbie, President Biden quietly told donors yesterday that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has to change his ways, for reporting from Reuters. Biden remarked Israel's security can rest on the United States, but right now it has more than the United States. It has the European Union. It has Europe. It has most of the world. But they're starting to lose that support by indiscriminate bombing that takes place. The New York Times found that over the past decade, Netanyahu encouraged Qatar to send millions of dollars a month to Gaza, money that helped prop up the Hamas government there, because he calculated that the existence of Hamas would help him endlessly avoid negotiations for a Palestinian state.
0: Despite his private remarks, President Biden, however, is still putting on a united front with Israel. Here he is at the White House this weekend.
2: 35 years ago, I said, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist, and I'm a Zionist.
3: You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist.
0: Senior advisor to the Netanyahu government recently sat down with CNN to answer Biden's criticisms of how Israel, to answer to Biden's criticisms of how Israel is handling its war in Gaza. Let's watch that.
3: I want you to react to a specific remark from President Biden. He says, uh, and I quote, this is the most conservative government in Israel's history, adding that the Israeli government does not want a two-state solution. Mark, is President Biden wrong? Well, the, the position of my prime minister is that the Palestinians should have all the power to rule themselves and none of the power to hurt Israel. And that second part is, is also very important. As you saw, uh, Israelis are still in shock from what happened to us on October 7th, uh, where Palestinians crossed the border from Gaza and butchered our people. I think it's important, though, to put this, this disagreement with the Americans into context. Uh, we agree on the need to defeat Hamas, that Israel is within its right and within its obligation to our people to destroy Hamas, that we have to see a new situation in the Gaza strip and i think it's not impossible that when we as we've you know work together that we can find a way to move ahead in a post hamas gaza scenario so
1: you It might be hard to tell listening to that answer, but he did not affirm that Netanyahu has any interest in a two-state solution. So we know from other reporting that he has been in Israel making the pitch that you should rely on me because I'm the one who will thwart a two-state solution. When asked directly about that, um, uh, that was Mark Regev, uh, says, well, we want Palestinians to have all the rights they can have as long as they cannot. Hurt uh, Israel. Now, that seems reasonable if you think, well, nobody should be hurting anybody. But obviously, our state and every other state has the ability to hurt other states. We have the largest military in the history of the world. So, what he's saying is, no, there cannot be an independent Palestinian state that would have an army and all the other freedoms that all other states in the world are allotted. And at the same time, that the spokesperson is taking that position, that Netanyahu is taking that position. Joe Biden is facing the American public and saying, well, don't worry, we're all working toward a two-state solution together, knowing full well, as we know from these private conversations, that Netanyahu is absolutely not interested in that.
0: Yeah, it makes—it makes Joe Biden look very weak and feckless yeah. that, uh, that he says we're going to continue to give them money and then just— quietly hope maybe sort of they change a long standing policy commitment that their government has to 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 not a two state solution netanyahu cannot be more clear that he does not support a state two state solution and in fact has a long history of 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 implicitly, even with funding, propping up Hamas in order to delegitimize the idea of a two-state solution. I would argue that was a very bad course of action that helped lead to the massacre on October 7th, and now dealing with a situation where uh, where, yes, it does not seem viable at the moment, it would, it would take um, working more closely with the, the PLO or some more moderate Palestinian faction, given what happened. Um, Israel is fairly committed, understandably, to the destruction of Hamas, although it's going to have massive civilian casualties in the course of getting there. But what, what what is Biden doing? What does he think? Do you think a different president could get a different response out of Israel? You've talked, you know, in the past—actually, Reagan and George H.W. Bush mm-hmm. were, were not—whatever Israel wants and we're not going to say anything about it, they didn't have That attitude about it, Um, uh, you know, Trump for all, accused of being such a destabilizing force on the uh, national, uh, on the international level. You know, oh my God, our our other countries are so they don't even know how to react to the U.S. anymore because he's so he careens so wildly from conversation to conversation. It's so threatening to us, Um, of course. Uh, we you know we've pointed out all the ways in which that doesn't necessarily track that there can be a you know, benign gentle business as usual kind of bidenism that is not actually making america safer or exerting really any uh... influence uh, a pro us influence on the rest mm-hmm. of the world.
1: Yes, and not that this should be the primary concern when, you know, upwards of 18,000 people have been killed, but and it's hurting Biden domestically, politically. There is really no upside for uh, for him here. It's difficult to understand what's motivating him. His people at home don't want him to do it, with over 66 uh, percent of Americans now supporting a ceasefire. And that number is growing. The global community overwhelmingly supports a ceasefire. We see that with these um, subsequent—these uh, repeated resolutions at the UN, where the rest of the world overwhelmingly votes in favor of a ceasefire that would be uh, linked to the release of hostages, which most people in the world see as a primary goal. But That does not seem to be Israel's priority, right? They had hostage release, successful hostage release, during the the few days ceasefire that uh, occurred uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday. That worked. Um, however you want to frame it, that worked. They got hostages back, and now these UN ceasefires that would also be uh, contingent on the release of hostages, all hostages rejected by Israel and the United States. So what is the game plan here from Biden? He's bleeding support in key states like Michigan, largely because of uh, Arab voters who see themselves as being uh, Biden as being on the wrong side of history, but not exclusively because of those voters. It's also young voters across the board, and frankly, and increasingly, Average part of the American electorate, and you have Biden. The statements last night were so galvanizing online and across the uh, across the country last night because you hear Biden simultaneously saying, admitting, Israel is carrying out quote indiscriminate bombing. None of the hiding behind, they're they doing uh, precision attacks. Israel does the most any country could ever do to try to save civilians. Um, human shields. None of that language. You heard you heard Biden. Seemingly attribute blame to Israel by saying it's carrying out, quote, indiscriminate bombing at the same time that he says there is, quote, no plans to shift its position, the, US, the United States' position, and draw any red lines around the transfer of weapons and munitions to Israel. Weapons that sure. Israel is using to conduct indiscriminate bombing.
0: According to Biden. According to Biden. That's the, it seems like he's agreeing with the criticism but then not agreeing that there should be any kind of policy. Right. But you could reject the criticism, you right. could, as many, uh, many pro-Jewish voices do, as many conservatives do, as some Democrats do. You could say that, um, that uh, no, we should support Israel as they continue this war against a terrorist organization that attacked them. You could also say, as I think many of my more um, non-interventionist aligned people on the right say, you know what, they're gonna do what they're going to do, it's not really our business and we sh- don't need to give them Unlimited support in doing so. We have a lot of problems at home. We should we should be dealing with. That's neither an endorsement nor condemnation. That's just your problem. It's elsewhere in the world. We need to be focused on what's going on here in America. A a position I would argue is is very popular um, uh, among like. Broad swaths of the of the population and didn't get enough attention when the when you know neoconservatism was the reigning orthodoxy of the Republican Party. People like Tucker Carlson and others have helped really puncture that and, and shown mm-hmm. that there's a lot of Americans who feel differently. But Biden has put himself in this weird position where he, he's supporting them. He clearly can't affect them very much and agrees with some of the criticism and is suffering a lot of, is, or some significant hemorrhaging of support among his coalition but for
1: if, it. But he, he can affect them, right? The, the white phosphorus that... Um, Israel dropped on Gaza illegally is U.S. white phosphorus. The bombs that Israel is dropping on Gaza are American bombs. He cannot simultaneously hold this position or try to hide behind a projected opinion that he really can't control the actions of another country, when we are literally paying for the bombs that are being used to kill 18,000 civilians. It's just not a sustainable position, and I think that is why public opinion has turned so aggressively against Israel and against Joe Biden both. One other part of the clip that we have yet to touch on is uh, his remarks from last weekend, where he uh, told uh, the press you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, I'm a proud Zionist. And many people were picking up from that that this is validating many people's arguments, including many people on the left, who say, Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, right? If Joe Biden, who obviously isn't Jewish, who is Catholic, is saying, I'm a proud Zionist, this is exactly why people are resisting the idea of conflating, as Congress just voted to do, Um, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. This is objection to a political project which anybody can agree to. So many um, conservative Christian fundamentalists in the United States of America are some of the most core base supporters of Zionist politics in this country. Out, outnumbering, frankly, the number of Jewish supporters How would in this you, country.
0: And I mean this not as a gotcha at all. Yeah, How sure. would you define being I'm, a, I'm being, I'm a Zionist, I'm pro-Zionism. What, what is meant by that?
1: Yeah, the, I, many people would have different definitions. Okay. I think personally talking about it as not just the existence of a state where Jewish people can be safe in the region, but one that is a Jewish state that accords specific rights to Jewish people that means that other people who live there who aren't Jewish are by definition, second-class citizens and uh, creating apartheid conditions for them. So that's why many people, when they they bristle at the idea of saying, well, there's nothing wrong with being anti-Zionist, of course I have to be anti-Zionist because I reject the idea of any kind of state that would privilege the the treatment, the rights, the privileges of one group of people because of some immutable characteristic, whether it's their ethnicity or their religion or however you want to characterize Judaism, over another group. Hmm. Uh, And that's why they say, well, it can't be—why you are describing it as genocide? I'm not saying the Jewish population there should be exterminated when I say it's the river to the sea. I'm simply saying that everyone should be able to live there with equal rights, however the national lines are carved, whether it's in an Israeli state or in a Palestinian state. Um, but that the current conditions, where that quite obviously isn't the case, shouldn't be be allowed to persist, or shouldn't persist because of the political and self-determination of the people who are living there currently. Mm.
0: All right, we'll have more rising right after this.
1: The United Nations General Assembly voted overwhelmingly yesterday to pass a non-binding resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Let's take a watch.
4: The, The result of the vote is as follows. 153 in favor 10 against 23 abstentions draft resolution a stroke es 10 stroke l 27 has been adopted a
1: number of countries in europe including germany italy and the netherlands voted to abstain from the vote While the United States and Israel, of course, voted against the measure, the vote comes as many aid groups warn that the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is unprecedented.
0: As Glenn Greenwald tweeted, six leaders of different aid groups who have worked in every recent major war zone and humanitarian crisis say there's nothing that compares to Gaza in terms of the sheer level of civilian suffering and destruction to civil society. One such case uh, showing sickening disregard for human life reported in Israeli outlet Haaretz. The outlet wrote that the IDF operations directorate's influencing department, which is responsible for psychological warfare operations against the enemy and foreign audiences, operates a telegram channel called 72 virgins uncensored which targets israeli audiences and shows the bodies of hamas terrorists with the promise of shattering the terrorist fantasy.
1: Here to discuss as international lawyer and advocacy officer with Al-Haq, Ahmed Abuful, Ahmed, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, can you talk to us first and foremost about the nature of this uh, Telegram channel for American audience? Wh- what is a, a, a Telegram channel, and what is the nature of the imagery that's contained within, and why has it gone so viral?
5: Well, the, the, the information is, is reaching from Gaza, including in, in Telegram channels, is usually information from the ground. Uh, And usually, as a human rights organization, we use different uh, platforms and different methods to verify the information that is reaching. And um, I can assure you the information, the verified information that reaches us from Gaza uh, is beyond horrifying, even for people like us who spend their lives working in this field uh, and on this particular situation. And that's why you see. The reactions from heads of humanitarian organizations around the world writing a piece together in the New York Times saying that this is something like we've seen before. You see the the, um, Secretary General of the UN uh, saying that we're witnessing an unparalleled uh, level of killing and and, and destruction uh, in Gaza. It's beyond uh, uh, horrifying. But it's also important to note, if you allow me, that the current situation, uh, as the Secretary General did, did, did not happen in a vacuum. The that, that, that history did not start on the 7th of October, nor the Palestinian suffering started uh, uh, then. This is the result of 75 years of dispossession and oppression of settler colonialism and apartheid imposed against the Palestinian people as a whole. This is also the result of 56 years of occupation. Israel's occupation is the longest in modern history. The fact that this was allowed to continue is a stain in humanity, and this is allowed to continue with. U.S. Uh, tax money. And this is also the result of 16-year-long suffocating uh, medieval-like blockade on the Gaza Strip where you have 2.3 million Palestinians living in around 360 square meters. This is one of the most densely populated areas in the world to give your audience and and your viewers, uh, an idea how difficult the the situation was already before the war. The UN has published a report in 2012 expecting that Gaza will be unlivable by 2020. Now we're three years past that with complete siege uh, and heavy indiscriminate bombardment on uh, uh, civilians, the equivalent, already the equivalent of more than two Hiroshima nuclear, uh, nuclear bombs. If you allow me to give you just some statistics about how uh, horrific the situation is and the intensity and the indiscriminate nature of Israel's attack. In the first month alone, the ratio of Israel's killing in Gaza was that Israel kills one Palestinian every four minutes. Israel kills six children and four women every hour. In the first week alone, Israel bombed Gaza with more than the US bombed Afghanistan in a whole year. In the first 25 days alone, Israel killed and injured uh, civilians in Gaza more than those uh, uh, in Ukraine by the Russian uh, invasion. So far, Israel has killed in Gaza double the number of those killed in the Serbian uh, genocide, the Serbinka genocide of of, of, uh, uh, of Bosnia Muslims. Save the Children, a reputable organization, has said that the number of children killed in Gaza has already exceeded the number of children killed in all conflict areas around the world since 2019. It's a stain on humanity that such barbaric cruelty uh, against civilian, uh, such televised carnage is not only allowed, but sometimes justified and rationalized. It's also regrettable, uh, and I think shameful that the US still cannot uh, do the bare minimum of human decency, that is to call for a ceasefire, a true leadership. You know, is about consistent application of international law. To be able to apply it to your friends and your foes alike. Selective application of international law, double standards and hypocrisy, not only dehumanize the Palestinians and allow the genocide being committed against them, but also undermine the whole body of international law that to a certain extent uh, provided stability after World War II. And if we were to undermine this system, then we have a very dark future Ahead of us, and also one one final thing, allow me to say in our region, what is also at stake is the credibility of the U.S. Uh, and of the of, of, and the U.S.'s reputation as it portrays itself as a country that promotes human rights. While at the same uh, time, we see that Israel uh, continues to commit crimes, and the U.S. has made it clear that Israel is not listening and continue uh, to kill civilians. But at the same time, the U.S. continues to send weapons to Israel. So I, I talk to you and. I lost 10 members of my family. Just before this interview, I received another call that probably uh, another number has been killed. We still don't know uh, the number, but one of our cousins, a paramedic, was targeted in his home with his family, and I still cannot verify the number. Uh, uh, So I will never know, like many uh, Palestinians around the world, including Palestinian Americans, for example, if American tax money killed my family or another American-Palestinian. will never know. Uh, And that is, it it is likely that their tax money is killing their families in Gaza. This is preposterous. Uh, It must stop now, and the U.S. must come back to its uh, senses and act like a true uh, leader and prevent such a carnage.
1: We're so sorry for your loss. Ahmed.
0: Yes, very sorry to hear that. Obviously the uh, images we see of people um, killed in Gaza is heart-wrenching and is awful. I wondered if you could talk to us more about what you and your organization view as the framework for a ceasefire. Um, you know, obviously, from the Israeli perspective, is there there is a lot of public will among the people in Israel to continue a war against Hamas, given what happened on October seventh, and they are committed to the the total defeat and destruction of Hamas. Um, Hamas is also is also has promised to engage in further um October 7th until its political goals are met so while it might be ideal from an outsider perspective for a ceasefire I would certainly hope for the violence to end, if both participants in the conflict don't want there to be a ceasefire, what does all of this, what can we accomplish outside in the rest of the world, in the chambers of the UN? or If U.S. policies, I would be perfectly happy to have it stop funding Israel and Ukraine and anyone else. But, uh, but how, how do we move toward a ceasefire when both sides of the conflict want, want, the, want exactly what's happening now?
5: Yeah, first of all, if, if you would be kind enough to allow me to correct Uh, It it is not that both sides don't want a ceasefire. It's only Israel who doesn't want a ceasefire. Uh, And to say that a ceasefire will not uh, prevent further escalation, I think, would be a little bit naive, because previous uh, uh, escalations or previous hostilities and assaults on the Gaza Strip, all of them ended with a ceasefire, ended with uh, agreements with Hamas, many of which Israel violated, uh, uh, unprovoked, and start attacking Gaza again. Uh, I think the the, the very narrative to claim that the problem in the Palestinian context is Hamas uh, uh, is quite, I think, uh, superficial, simply because Hamas was uh, uh, created and emerged under the Israeli occupation. In 1987, Israel occupied the Palestinian territory. In 1967, there were 20 years before even Hamas existed, and we still didn't have Uh, peace. We had a prolonged occupation, a continuing building of colonial illegal settlements in the West Bank. And mentioning the West Bank, nowadays, we don't have Hamas in the West Bank. Why Israel continue to build illegal settlements? Why Israel imposes an apartheid regime in the the Palestinians uh, and the Palestinian people as a whole? Why Israel continue to kill Palestinian children uh, uh, every day, uh, almost on a daily basis in the West Bank? Uh, uh, We have been documenting uh, a rise of settler Violence against Palestinian civilians in the West Bank—that uh, is, uh, uh, more than 133 percent more pogroms and and a uh, 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 targeting of Palestinian civilians in the West Bank—is taking place under the protection of the Israeli army. Uh, we have racist ministers in the Israeli uh, uh, government, like Ben Gvir, who has been distributing weapons on settlers. So settlers carry weapons on uh, uh, weapons and arms openly, and. Uh, uh, conduct uh, pogroms in the West Bank, killing the Palestinians, and there's no Hamas there. How do you justify that? So I think, uh, I think it's quite superficial to portray the situation as only uh, Hamas, and the solution to that is a political solution. It's not a military solution. Palestinians are not colonial subjects, uh, and we're not begging for our rights. We're entitled to those rights, and we will have them. We will become uh, uh, free. We, we believe our freedom is inevitable. Uh, and what we try to do as human rights organizations is to uh, minimize the suffering of people you asked me about civil society uh, uh, and as you know israel has designated uh, two years ago six palestinian civil society organizations including human rights organizations like the one i am proudly affiliated with as quote unquote terrorist organizations so you have now an israeli government that targets civil society human rights organizations and describe them as terrorists when the palestinians decide to go to Courts, like any civilized nations, decide to go to the International Criminal Court to have accountability. Israel describes it as pure anti-Semitism. When the Palestinians decide to go to the International Court of Justice, the principal organ of the United Nations, Israel describes it as diplomatic terror. So, obviously, any form of uh, uh, of rejection and dissent and opposition to Israel's racist policy is being labeled as uh, uh, terrorism and is, is is being Uh, denounced. Notably, Palestinians have tried everything. In 2018, they marched the borders uh, uh, peacefully, as uh, what some would describe Gandhi or Mandela style, and they were all shot. Uh, Several young uh, people lost their, their, their limbs because of Israeli snipers shooting at their knees and at their elbows, and the Commission of Inquiry concluded that war crimes were committed. Israeli soldiers were killing Palestinians for sport. And uh, they were recording this on video. There's evidence to that. So how do you justify that either? So the Palestinians tried everything. Tried peaceful uh, uh, demonstrations. Tried uh, to agree on the Oslo Accord. Which, for your information, the Palestinians has agreed only on twenty-two percent of historic Palestine. I don't believe any nation in the world has ever made such a compromise for a better future for their children and the children of the uh, of the Israelis. But Did Israel was was Israel happy with that? No, Israel continued building settlements. Netanyahu, the the one that you described that we want, you want the Palestinians to find a political solution with, he made it clearly. He said there will never be a Palestinian state. So you're dealing with someone who doesn't view as as equal human beings who issued genocidal statements against the Palestinian people. And then the American administration want to uh, to turn the other side act blind and say well we want to work for a two-state solution there's no symmetry there's no two sides to this conflict there is occupier and occupied there's colonizer and colonized and that let, is let me story. ask you this Israel is the aggressor yes let, let me ask you this
0: you you talked about all of the uh, the the Activity the protest what what Palestinians did to try to achieve their political rights over the the past decades You suggested that didn't work and so now Hamas has done this terrorist attack on Israel um, Killing hundreds of people including many civilians women and children, etc Was that the right course of action? Is that a course of action that is going to lead toward? Palestinian rights it looks to me like that's a course of action that has directly resulted now in thousands of Ill- innocent Palestinian deaths I- as Israel engages in its response. Um, so was this really, was this a good course of action?
5: Well, uh, first of all, let me let me uh, just make it clear. There's nothing, nothing in the world justifies what's happening at the moment in Gaza. This is at the outset. Uh, uh, and the second thing I want to, to say that it, clearly Hamas is not the representative of the Palestinian people the representative of the Palestinian people is the blo is is uh, the palestine liberation organization guess what it's also uh labeled as terrorist by by israel this is the BLO at that time the the oslo uh codes so to to make this clear at the outset and then the other point i want to comment on i think the usage of of the um, uh of the word terrorism has been used for for political reasons for decades especially in the context of the right to self-determination uh, now the palestinians have the right to resist the occupation in any way possible that's up to them to choose which way but it has to be in compliance with international humanitarian law therefore civilians must never be targeted whether by palestinians by israelis or any other nation palestinians uh, civilians must be protected at all times and those who target civilians must be held accountable I hope I'm I'm making myself as clear as it could ever be. Those who target civilians must be held accountable, but must be held accountable by an independent investigative body, not by Israel. Because Israel has a history of pathologically uh, lying and trying to shield those responsible uh, from any meaningful uh, accountability. Let me give example to that. As a matter of fact, Israel has killed uh, several Palestinian-Americans, including the veteran journalist, your colleague, and you're also uh, a fellow American, who was killed by in the Israeli army. Israel first lied, said the Palestinian killed her. Then when investigation showed that it was an Israeli soldier, Sniper, who shot her, Israel said, well, possibly. And then Israel admitted, but guess what? Israel said, no one will be held accountable. So those who commit crimes, regardless of the nationality of the perpetrator, must be held accountable but must be held accountable by the international independent body that investigate uh, those crimes. And uh, I would urge you uh, and it, all our, our uh, uh, viewers to be very cautious with this term of, of, of terrorism in the right of self, uh, in the right self-determination. Do I need to remind you that Nelson Mandela was labeled as terrorist and remained on the U.S. Uh, uh, terrorist list until 2008? Did that make Nelson Mandela a terrorist? Of course not. I don't think any person would say Nelson Mandela was uh, was a terrorist.
1: Ahmed, thank you so much for spending time with us today.
5: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Reporting from the New York Post on the controversy surrounding Harvard University President Claudine Gay, the outlet alleges that Harvard covered up a high-level investigation into whether Gay truly plagiarized parts of her dissertation, used the elite law firm Claire Locke to threaten the Post over the outlet's own probe into the matter. The college announced yesterday that it had investigated Gay over whether some of her academic work was plagiarized and had cleared her of, quote, breaching the college's standards for research misconduct. But according to the Post, Harvard spent weeks failing to come clean about Gay being under investigation, even when she testified in front of Congress about anti-Semitism on campus. Harvard's public statement on the allegations of plagiarism came one day after uh, journalists at the Washington Free Beacon, Aaron Sabarium, and also uh, Christopher Rufo, another conservative writer, posted claims regarding Gay's alleged plagiarism on X and did not disclose that Harvard had allegedly conducted a plagiarism investigation into Gay when she appeared before Congress last week.
1: The New York Post contacted Harvard on October 24th, asking for comment on, quote, more than two dozen instances in which gays' words appeared to closely parallel words, phrases, or sentences and published work by other academics.
0: When the Post brought the allegations to Harvard, they were later sent a 15-page letter by attorney Thomas Clare containing comments from academics whose work Gay was alleged to have been properly cited, even though the political scientist review could only have just begun, the New York Post writes. And also yesterday, another academic came forward to accuse Gay of plagiarism. Miami University professor Ann Williamson has said the pr- Harvard president plagiarized her work, and she told the New York Post that she was angry and stated that it does look like plagiarism to her. Political scientist and legal scholar Dr. Carol Swain weighed in on the allegations gay is facing while on News Nation this week. Do you think she committed plagiarism?
1: I mean there's no question that she uh, committed plagiarism. There are some Harvard faculty members who are trying to redefine what is plagiarism. We all know what it is and so she did violate that and it was not just in her dissertation. It was also in some of her publications. NAACP President Derek Johnson has come out in defense of Gay, writing on X yesterday. Enough is enough. Harvard President Claudine Gay is a distinguished scholar and professor with decades of service in higher education. The recent attacks on her leadership are nothing more than political theatrics advancing a white supremacist agenda. And Democratic strategist Amisha Cross said the real reason why Harvard President Claudine Gay came under attack became evident pretty quickly. The anti-DEI attacks, racist rhetoric, the idea that she was never good enough or merited to ascend to president is one of the most prestigious universities of the world, racism. Hmm.
0: So I don't know. There's obviously the that's the tenor of the defense of her actions so far that it's all racism and white supremacy to um, object to, but what now multiple... Uh, professors uh, not properly cited um, or taken, uh, having had the words and phrases used exactly by Claudine Gay, now saying that they feel that it is, in fact, plagiarism. Um, uh, Harvard uh, has stood by Claudine Gay, while at the same time uh, 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 having her rephrase some of the wording in question. In those two articles, yeah. Yeah. Not in the
1: thesis. I I believe they said that the thesis— um, the corrections were going to be to the articles and not to her sure. her substantive PhD thesis.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, look, I, I, as I said last two times we talked about this, um, I think the standard should be the same. I think it's, yeah, I don't think it's examples of um, it, not the most ob- obscene plagiarism I've ever seen, but lazy plagiarism where you don't Totally um, reword things, and you do that a couple times is still plagiarism. Does still violate the Harvard policies, and uh, and that should matter here. And you know, if if, if it's the case that this is routinely happening among students or other professors, they should too. Or, or that shouldn't be the standard. The standard should be rewritten then to, I guess, observe that I guess everyone's just doing that. But it uh, it, I, it it uh, it feels like it, to me it feels wrong to exempt her. Um, I mean, she is the head of this extremely prestigious institution, and I'm sorry, I don't think it's fair to say that all inquiries along this, these lines um, are, are, like, are, are white supremacists.
1: But I'm confused. How are they exempting her? Um, they're not firing her. Are you saying that if they don't fire her, tell—you know, she has volunteered to, so she didn't have to be made to, but she has voluntarily said that she agrees that she needs to change and update the citations to those two articles. That is happening how 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 is there I, I'm confused. Are you saying that the only appropriate course of action is to fire her? Because it seems like, but for that, everything else that's being done here is being characterized as sweeping it under the rug or not having accountability. So, what does accountability look like to you? I'm not sure that
0: firing her is the appropriate cause. I don't know. Um, I would like to know how this is dealt with um, similarly when it's uh, with, with if students or professors commit this offense. Is expulsion on the table for violating this pol- for repeated violations of the policy? Then I would say probably. She should resign or be fired?
1: Well, that's. I I know that you bristled somewhat when I brought up the example of Alan Dershowitz, but we know that that hasn't been Harvard's course of action when very serious, much more substantive plagiarism claims were raised about Alan Dershowitz's work. So, if there's a double standard here, it does seem to be that people are pushing for the firing of Roxanne Gay, who never seem to have investigated. Sorry. Sorry. Why do I Claudine doing and, and uh and Abby and uh, uh, Abby Martin and, and, and Abby, Abby Phillips. Phillips. What is wrong yeah. with my brain? I'm so sorry. Um, people calling for the firing of Claudine Gay never investigated or seem to have any interest in the much more substantive review of um, Alan Dershowitz's work. And I'm not calling for Alan Dershowitz to be fired either. Well, but I mean, if he violated some-
0: the plagiarism policy, then he should be. Well, do not I haven't been. looked into and the- that.
1: And that was like over a decade ago, I believe, that that was first revealed by um, Norman Finkelstein. Uh, and corroborated corroborated by a number of other professors in the same way that we just watched some corroboration of what's gone on with Claudine Gay, except for, again, it wasn't this kind of lazy plagiarism where you don't do enough to change the words to a synonym that you're citing to, but um, a misrepresentation of other people's ideas in a way that had a substantive effect of making an argument that wasn't substantiated by
0: the facts. Alan Dershowitz you know, has been grilled on this very program. Not about that, but actually about his associations yeah, so, with Jeffrey Epstein. Have- so I have no, like I'm not objecting to him being held oh, to some, I'm that's not, what I'm, not I'm saying. saying it just are. seems not but the standard, to have anything to do with this. You're-
1: well, you just said that the standard—there sh- should be no double standard, that whatever that yes. is done to Claudine Gay is what should be—is d- done to other professors. So the one other clear example of plagiarism by a Harvard professor that I know of is Alan Dershowitz, who was not fired. And so if they're going to have a consistent standard, then Claudine Gay also should not be fired now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the other part that I'm a little confused about in the New York Post is this um, implication that there was some kind of cover-up and that they should have disclosed— at the hearing um, about anti-Semitism on campus, that she was under investigation for this unrelated thing, we were discussing this earlier in the week. You. Also insisted that those were separate things, that this was not a pretext, that she is not being pursued for these plagiarism charges because of um, C- Christopher Rufo and his cohorts. No, feelings. I did not say
0: she was not being pursued because of that issue. You said it didn't I matter. said it doesn't ultimately matter, doesn't matter if matter. the if the shoe fits. Okay.
1: So this seems to matter a great deal to Christopher Ruffo and the people here at the at the New York Post, because they're specifically arguing that for some reason at an unrelated hearing, uh, that these issues should have been brought up for reasons that I can't imagine, other than they're trying to make a credibility determination and undermine her credibility at that hearing because they, generally speaking, wanted her not to be a credible uh, interlocutor to defend the free speech policies at Harvard University. I don't know how one can deny the connection between those things.
0: D- deny the 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 New York Post, the New York Post is saying that um, uh, that also they retained legal counsel, or that Harvard retained legal counsel to threaten and harass them or scare them away well, from that's investigating a people. I mean, that's not
1: that's that's I, a big mean, like characterization. Does that seems like a,
0: f- a threat to free speech? Right? Hiring, <laughs> is
1: hiring a lawyer a threat to free, free speech? No. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Robbie. To
0: send to send threatening what to send a threatening letter to the New York Post, right? That's I'm what it led. Wait
1: a minute. To a, a, a cease and desist letter is not a hey, pay me the money or I'm coming to your house letter. Let's let's be serious about what's going on here. If if they if, you're you're saying okay. that there's no there's nothing wrong with um, the there being an investigation. If Claudia Gay did something wrong, then it's fine to have an investigation. If these people did something, if, if these uh, if the investigation of the New York Post or the writing of the New York Post isn't inappropriate or liable list or anything like that, then they shouldn't have any issue with. uh, Claudine Gay having hired an an attorney or or Harvard hiring attorneys as they're in the middle of a very high-profile media storm. You would expect them not to retain any counsel? Look, the insinuation here
0: is that Harvard's president has violated the plagiarism policies. There are now at least two professors who claim that—who agree that their work was plagiarized by Claudine Gay, and Harvard is not other than changing or correcting some aspects of some of those citations, they're not doing anything to discipline her further, and people are wondering why that is and whether that's not the correct. Well, they of did action.
1: an analysis, and they found no violations. I'm quoting le- from their letter: no violation of Harvard standards for research misconduct, uh, and that the corrections are being made in. Um, articles that were written outside of that context as opposed to for her thesis, and they're moving for a correction and they're moving on. And again, it seems very obvious here that this is not gonna stop. People are gonna keep complaining about this until she's fired, because that's the goal here, is to cancel her, if you will, and coming from the people who made their bones about how destructive that is and how we should fight speech with other speech and how college campuses have to be um, venues for discourse and not shutting people down or ousting them from their jobs The real credibility issue here, I think, is for people like Christopher Rufo and his cohort, who I think can't ever credibly make the case again that they care about free speech on college campuses.
0: I don't think this is about free speech. This is about holding people to the same academic standards. You you can't- As Alan Dershowitz. I don't care. Maybe he should have been fired. I don't like, I'm not, it okay, doesn't so matter. Why? It doesn't stop this. <laughs> but because he, you can always find some other examples well, so we didn't do anything about was, that, so we can't do anything about this. But he wasn't fired. We're talking about this.
1: All right, so look, look, look let's just agree. I, if they fire, I'm, I'm completely supportive of them firing Claudine Gay, if they fire Alan Dershowitz, or they can keep them both hired. Either situation seems to be a consistent. um Course of action to me. So what's the what's the complaint? Right, I would
0: love to be a student at Harvard. I can commit my first plagiarism. I can be caught, and I can say, well, you can't do anything about this because of Claudine Gay and well, Alder Schwitz. If you're
1: a student at Harvard, and I you get out a, of jail free card. Minute, if you're a student at Harvard and you write an article that's not for classwork and you're accused of plagiarism, that has nothing to do with the, the colleges academic plagiarism policy, which is why there's this distinction between what happened in her PhD and what happened in these articles she wrote elsewhere.
0: All right, we will continue to follow the discourse around this. More Rising in just a minute. We have some breaking news this morning. Hunter Biden has defied House Republican subpoena during a brief appearance on Capitol Hill this morning where he bucked Republican efforts to push him into closed-door testimony with this statement to the
2: press. already been a five-year investigation of me. Yet, here I am, Mr. Chairman, taking up your offer when you said... We can bring these people in for depositions or committee hearings, whichever they choose. Well, I've chosen. I am here to testify at a public hearing today to answer any of the committee's legitimate questions. Republicans do not want an open process where Americans can see their tactics, expose their baseless inquiry, or hear. What I have to say. What are they afraid of? I'm here. I'm ready. Mr.
0: ready
5: the
0: the Republican led House is set to approve a formal impeachment hearing into President Biden today. The GOP says that this vote, expected to take place this evening, is necessary to give them full authority to carry out their investigations. For the New York Times.
1: This week, Representative Jim Jordan was pressed the GOP's insistence on Hunter Biden's testimony.
2: Let Hunter Biden, let him testify in open. You know, there is no mandate that it has to be a closed-door session. There's no rule. Uh, Just have him be in public. If he's he's going to be an ass-clown, let him be an ass-clown. But let everybody see it. uh, I'm fine and I want to do that, but I first want him in private because in public, it's always speeches and filibusters and a handful of questions and people trying to get the big moment. But in a closed door deposition, which, by the way, the Trump children had to set for Don Jr. had to set for in two different committees in a, in a closed door deposition. In that yeah, I situation, didn't like it. You, you have much more questions. Well, but, and then if he wants to go public, and you know, we want him to go public at that point, that's fine.
1: Joining us now to discuss is a former U.S. Senate candidate and founder of the Future Caucus, Stephen Olikara. Welcome.
6: Thank you for having me. Great to be here.
1: It's great to have you. Now, look, let's just get right into it. Is Hunter Biden wrong? Is it wrong to say you gave me an opportunity to say if I wanted a, a private conversation or a public conversation, I've chosen public, and now you're moving the goalpost?
6: All right. Well, first, keep in mind what's going on here is that Hunter Biden is fighting both in a both in legal court as well as in the court of public opinion. The House GOP knows that Hunter Biden is a very useful punching bag. And that's what's playing out on Capitol Hill right now. Hunter Biden is saying that, hey, let's do this in public so that we don't have messaging that's manipulated from a closed-door hearing. And I think he's exactly right on that. Let's—look, we just heard from Jim Jordan and and other Republicans who talk a lot about transparency. Let this— case be out in the open and let the public decide
0: yeah the reason to do it in private would be to shield the 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 witness the person under scrutiny from um, having some of their you know private information put into the public if they don't want that obviously that doesn't apply here because the information a lot of the embarrassing stuff is already out there and hunter biden himself is saying he wants to testify in public so i find that difficult to understand although I do take the point Jim Jordan made there that the more public a hearing, the more um, for the cameras and the more speeches by members, you know, thunderous denunciations on both sides. Also, he promises to answer, you know, legitimate questions. uh, But what I hear then is he's going to plead the fifth on, like, everything.
1: He could do that on private, though, too, right? Yeah.
6: Yeah. He could. Right, exactly. But if he is pleading the fifth or you do have grandstanding members of Congress, whatever that is, at least the public can evaluate whether we're seeing any real substance here or if it's all political gamesmanship.
1: It's yeah. a good point, Stephen. The grandstanding can happen on both sides. And we see this frequently in hearings, that the questions seem to be the point in a lot of the the back and forth that we end up getting uh, televised here. What do you make about this of uh, this notion that we need more investigation? Again, Hunter Biden, in his remarks, said, look, you've been doing this for five years. You've over- Returned every rock, is this really substantive, or is it simply a witch hunt?
6: Both, because, yes, Hunter Biden has been investigated for many years over and over and over again, but at the same time, there are reported events that has happened in terms of his business dealings as well as his issue with taxes, and that needs to be looked into. And certainly for any Democrat who looks at this issue and says, well, what about Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner? Yeah, hell yes. They should be investigated as well. I mean, look at the deals they're doing with Saudi Arabia. The underlying issue here is that the American people don't trust their government. Mm. They think that government is corrupted. And they see stories like Hunter Biden and Jared and Ivanka Trump, and that needs to be fully investigated. So has it been overkill with Hunter? Maybe. But I do think we need to get to the bottom of this and understand what the real corruption is. Now, keep in mind, Republicans are trying to tie this to Joe Biden, and there has not been any evidence of any uh, involvement of his. Yeah, part. there's
0: there's a lack of tr- trust that the American people have in their government, and conservatives, in particular, in particular, also have a distrust of, of law enforcement, including many of the investigators who've handled the Hunter Biden um, issue so far. The weaponization of the FBI is now a kind of a, is a major conservative issue. Frankly, um, there are a lot of questions about how the Hunter Biden uh, tax investigations were handled. Obviously the judge in the, in the case ultimately deciding that, wow, this is gonna be the most blanket protection immunity deal in the history of earth and might shield him from, uh, from f- frankly, more important questions about um, about his relationship with Burisma and, and whether that did affect or w- there was an attempt to affect the, uh, the Joe Biden um, foreign policy. Certainly it's fair to say there's no smoking gun yet in that indication. I would say there are the statements that President Biden and his team have made about their total lack of involvement have been have been contradicted by, uh, by subsequent events, which makes me think that, you know, this isn't a vote to impeach him, this is a vote to have further investigation of the
6: impeachment matter. Yeah, and first of all, you touched on a really important point, which is the weaponization of the FBI. And I think there is a principle that our country has been struggling with recently, which is the idea that no one, especially in power, as well as people who are proximate to power, should be above the law. And that's what a lot of the, the Trump impeachments are about. And that's uh, now what people are trying to do with, with Hunter Biden. And when the FBI becomes this politicized, it's, it's hard for the American people to really suss out what is, as you mentioned, Brianna, what's substantive and what's political here. And this is, a, you know, we're going into 2024, where there, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know there could be a lot of election denialism going on. So just underscores a deeper issue that people aren't trusting their institutions. And we don't know what reality we're living in.
1: So what do you do about that from here? I mean, I I do hear people saying um, sometimes conflicting things about how they perceive the uh, Donald Trump indictments versus the Hunter Biden indictments. I mean, I think we can all sit here and say that we would agree that we'd like things to be marshaled out in an even-handed way if you want to investigate Hunter Biden. As long as you're also willing to investigate the Trump children, then all is fair, and that we would like a higher level of accountability, not a lower threshold for everyone, especially people in power who typically are not held accountable. However, as you point out, people are going to the polls in 2024 and thinking about these in such expressly political terms that I think it is affecting people's judgment in some ways and their perception of which one of, ones of these investigations or indictments or prosecutions is fair and which isn't. How do these parties disentangle themselves from that when they have gone so far as to create this phenomenon, to shield themselves from, I think, having more substantive conversations about what they affirmatively plan to offer the American people?
6: You're, I think you're exactly right with that, because what's not going on is trying to address the multiple crises facing America. I've spent many years working with members of Congress, and there's a fixed amount of time to actually legislate and govern, which, by the way, is shrinking all the time. And so when you spend so much time on investigations like this, and now we're potentially looking at an impeachment of Joe Biden, it's just underscoring why American people are losing faith in their government. Now, look, Do people enjoy the reality show aspect of Mm -hmm. politics? Yes, and I don't want to take that away from people. Like, the entertaining aspect of this is is fine, but at the same time, this is also about public service, and you're not seeing people deliver. I mean, think about it. And House GOP leaders actually said this. What have they actually delivered in this session? What can the GOP go home and say that we've delivered as leaders of the House of Representatives? And that's what's underneath the issue here, is that this is taking away from that.
0: I mean, but but yeah, I mean, what if it's the case that, you know, what? What Republican voters want is, is is impeachment investigation, investigation into Hunter Biden, um, uh, uh, punishment or accountability for law enforcement being weaponized, and then probably many liberal Democrat voters on the other side want their, their top demand, you know, Trump held accountable for January sixth or everything else. If, if it's up to them, his name doesn't even appear on the ballot, right? It, right? Like that's the that's the you know we talk about more substantive issues, but what if what if the voters are getting exactly what they want, which is a reality TV style show trial for their political opponents. Partly right, yeah.
6: because what's really going on is which American people are you trying to appeal to? Yeah. They are appealing to the narrow slice of primary voters that most members of Congress are beholden to, not to the broad majority of people, which is what I call the exhausted majority. So most people really want to see Congress delivering, but you're exactly right that the narrow party activists that really dominate the process right now They do want impeachment. They do want investigations. They do want the reality show, things that feel good and kind of Mm. fire up the base. And so the question is, who are they serving? I think they need to serve most of us, not just the narrow slice of people. Mm.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your commentary. Thank you. Stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky seems to have gotten an early Christmas present. President Biden announced the U.S. would provide a $200 million drawdown from the Department of Defense during a meeting with Zelensky in the Oval Office yesterday. Let's listen.
2: I just signed another $200 million drawdown from the Department of Defense for Ukraine, and that will be coming quickly. Thank you. Thank you, much President-
1: While Zelensky seemed happy, the move didn't go over well with everyone. Presidential hopeful RFK Jr. tweeted, The Pentagon just failed their sixth audit. They use our tax dollars with no remorse or oversight. That stops with me.
0: And Republicans in both the House and the Senate reiterated their concerns with sending more money to Ukraine unless it's tied to domestic spending. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson told a gathered crowd of reporters that he had not received sufficient clarity from the White House on its Ukraine strategy.
6: I uh, just had a good meeting with President Zelensky. I reiterated to him that we stand with him and against Putin's brutal invasion. Uh, the American people stand for freedom and they're on the right side of this fight. I have asked the White House since the day that I was handed the gavel as Speaker for clarity. We need a clear articulation of the strategy to allow Ukraine to win. And thus far, their responses have been insufficient. They have not provided us the clarity and the detail that we have requested over and over since literally 24 hours after I was handed the gavel as Speaker of the House.
0: On the Senate side, Tommy Tuberville from Alabama was even harsher, implying that Ukraine probably never had much of a chance to win in the first place. Let's watch.
5: Are you
3: concerned that if there's no money, Ukraine could lose the war to Russia?
4: Well, well, that's always been a big possibility the whole time. I mean, I've I've never thought they could win to begin with,
1: especially the way we eased into it. What are the implications that if Russia wins, are you worried about the
0: implications if Russia wins?
2: Well, everybody keeps saying they're going to continue to go across
1: Europe. I mean, they can't beat Ukraine on the eastern side. How are they going to continue to go the rest of the way through through Europe? I've never believed that scenario. I think it's, uh, I think it's a good selling point to send more money. I mean, Tommy Tuberville is obviously right. Russia is a nuclear power. Ukraine is not, and without the United States being willing to commit to World War III. This was always going to end exactly like this. The fact that we're now allowed to say that out loud without being accused of being a Putin's puppet represents a meaningful shift, but at what cost to the lives of people in Ukraine?
0: Yeah, and, and frankly, um, Speaker Mike Johnson, I, I thought he said a number of reasonable things there. He said, uh, we, I, we stand with Zelensky, with the people of Ukraine. Uh, Russia, This was an unjust invasion that Russia shouldn't have done. Um, and and I, I'm not even—I take. I didn't take funding off the table. I just said, explain to us what the strategy is to win this war, and then we could talk about whether we'll be willing to pay for it. Mm. And there is no strategy. And in fact, privately, the intelligence officials knew this was probably a doomed effort. They knew exactly what Senator Tuberville is saying there. That, that was what our own intelligence officials concluded from the get-go. So why are we spending the money then? Which just, is just prolonging the point at which they're going to reach some kind of negotiation. There'll just be more... Uh, more, more casualties on both sides of the conflict in the meantime, and more of our money, another $200 million that, uh, uh, Biden just, that's like the rainy day fund. It's already been, uh, been approved. No, no wonder, by the way, the Pentagon keeps failing its audits right. when this is how we do policy. Like we didn't have Congress, okay, they already voted on this and Biden can just spend it how, how, how he wants. Um, it's, uh, it's, this is this is how you get into a place where you can't control government spending, you don't know what's going where, you don't even you don't have any you don't have a coherent national defense strategy strategy. You just have a, well, here's some money and have fun with that.
1: Yeah, I mean to play devil's advocate, I do think that the US had a strategy. It wasn't a strategy that was aligned with Ukraine's long-term interest, but the stated goal was to weaken Russia. They said sure. that. The stated goal was to weaken Russia. I think what they didn't expect was for Russia to basically persist in the way that it had and to not suffer as many consequences from the isolation that they wanted to impose, that they've been trying to impose both through these military efforts and through sanctions, as they had hoped. The actual consequence of this now almost two-year conflict has been Russia pulling together with the rest of its allies in the world more closely. You've seen a realignment economically with the uh, growth of the BRICS nations. You've seen a push toward de-dollarization and people moving away from dollar as a currency. And so it's not that Russia has become more increasingly isolated as a consequence of the conflict in Ukraine, is that the United States
0: you know, has become more isolated. But that was foreseeable, too, that that strategy wouldn't work. Uh, you know, where it show, I always say this, show me the evidence that sanctions um, uh, dislodge uh, enemy regimes uh, that like that rarely happens. Our, our 50-year embargo against Cuba couldn't even uh, dislodge that regime. That was a, that was a far um, stronger sanction-type measures taken. That didn't work to get rid of that government. Uh, it it immiserates the people of the countries that are targeted by this. It doesn't engender more goodwill toward the U.S. and it doesn't it doesn't take out their leadership. It just it fails to do that over and over again. So it's not surprising that yet again. That did not work.
1: Yeah, and props to Tuberville for also calling out, there at the end of his statements, he alluded to the fact that the argument that Putin was going to march across Europe was being used as a cudgel to get Mm. more funding. That has always been the case, up right until last night, where Biden characterized this additional $200 million in additional military aid to Ukraine um, as—thusly, he said, if you don't give it, it will be, quote, the greatest Christmas gift to Putin to not continue to provide um, this funding to Ukraine. And what we're talking about with this $200 million is largely um, these a- additional uh, weapons drawdown. So, um, this is from Fox News, it will be taken from P- Pentagon stockpiles and include additional ammunition for the high-mobility artillery rocket—that's the uh, HIMAR system that has been uh, discussed at length in Ukraine—high-speed anti-radiation missiles, anti-armor systems, artillery rounds, missiles, demolition mu- munitions, etc. Now remember, when we are ha- having that conversation about cluster bombs over the summer, part of the reason that we were looking the other way as cluster bombs are being used in violation of our global policies because of how destructive they are specifically to children was because we were running low on our own munitions, stockpiles, and that was all we had to give. Now we're being told we're sending another $200 million worth of these weapons and equipment from, again, allocations that were made with the intention of defending American safety interests at home and around the world. Now, I have my own critique of U.S. empire and how much we spend on military, but it is very interesting to live in a world where Joe Biden is saying money that was allocated to protect America is going to be written away to send to another country when there's already been ample reporting on our own stockpiles being low. Is this in America's best interest, and who exists in our political system who's willing to push back on this outside of a small number of Republicans?
0: And if Russia was actually planning to march across Europe, if our European friends and allies really believed that was about to happen, they would be kicking in more money to the Ukrainian war effort, the people who, are, who will be subsequently invaded, yeah. Germany, France, etc cetera. Um, this has largely been left to the U.S. The U.S. is sending the bulk of support. It's coming from us, which is always the case, where we have to be the world's policemen. Um, if this was an existential threat to Europe itself, If this was the beginning of the Soviet takeover of Europe, I bet they would be more worried about it. They're not. That
1: tells you something. And you probably wouldn't have to have bombed their pipeline. I don't know who did it, but you probably wouldn't need a pipeline bombing to twist the arm of Germany to get on board with this project. Yeah. All right. Well, we will continue to follow those developments and we'll have more rising right after this. Now, a Democratic New Hampshire primary debate might be happening after all. As we gear up for 2024, President Joe Biden has not taken part in the 2024 Democratic primary debates thus far. Forward Party co-chair Andrew Yang tweeted yesterday, I'm hearing there may be a Democratic primary debate in New Hampshire. Very exciting. But Biden is not even on the primary ballot in New Hampshire. The question is, who will participate? Hmm.
0: Recent Democratic primary polling from 538 shows President Joe Biden taking a strong lead with 65.8% of the vote, followed by candidates Marianne Williamson at 7.6% and Dean Phillips at 5.4%. Joining us now to weigh in on all of this and discuss the latest from her campaign is 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. Thank you for joining us, Marianne.
4: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So, uh, have you heard anything about this debate taking place, and is there any way, is it, could it possibly be, that Joe Biden would be willing to actually debate you, and uh, Dean
4: Phillips, and anyone else in the race? Well, there are debates being planned. Um I don't know if there's an official announcement yet. Maybe this is one. Theoretically, there's going to be a debate sponsored by Hanukkah, New England College in Hanukkah, New Hampshire, on January 8th. But so far, it's just Dean Phillips and myself. The DNC has made it clear for a long time that uh, the president will not be participating. uh, The DNC having made it very clear that he's the only candidate to be considered here and that the rest of us should just accept that.
1: Yeah, and it's gone beyond just non-participation by Joe Biden. I mean, I saw uh, you and Dean Phillips both talking about what's going on in Florida, where the Florida Democratic Party seems to have, by executive fiat, decided that only Joe Biden's name will be on the ballot. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened there?
4: Uh, the, the DNC and what, what's happening now that's so disturbing, something recently very, very similar happened in Tennessee. There seems to be a pattern, and we're tracking it very closely. By which the DNC is seeking to basically just shut down uh shut down primaries. Because that's basically what has happened here in Florida. This is not just about me, it's not just about Dean Phillips, it's about the voters of Florida who are being denied the opportunity to vote for who they want as the candidate for president. Because Florida law says that if there's only one name on there, then there is no primary. This is this is um very undemocratic, and we're tracking it carefully, and uh this will not go unchallenged
0: so much of the rhetoric coming from um, democratic um, pundits uh, from media figures is about the existential stake they say that uh, democracy is facing democracy is at risk because of republicans and because of donald trump what he did last time what he may do next time um, how can they continue to make that case while at the same time not allowing for real Choice, real democracy, in their own coalition, at a time where Joe Biden clearly has massive liabilities that many Democrats think he may be too old um, to run. He, he's polling very badly against Donald Trump, and then even worse against some of the other Republicans in uh, many of the swing states. But uh, democracy is the most important thing, the cardinal value. That's what. That's why we need a Democrat, according to these these people. And yet we're not having a fair primary. Why?
4: Well, what you're saying is exactly the point. They are saying that because democracy is at risk, we must suppress democracy. So what they're saying is that they, in their infinite wisdom, which is actually their wisdom, their infinite arrogance and sense of entitlement, have the right to decide who is the best challenger to Donald Trump. Their claim, of course, is how dangerous it is if Donald Trump gets back into the White House. I don't disagree with how dangerous it is if Trump gets back in the White House. My point is that, as Thomas Jefferson said, the only safe repository for power, therefore decision-making authority, is in the hands of the people. It should be the Democratic voters, or any voter, depending on whether or not it's an open primary, which New Hampshire is, who make the decision, who is the strongest candidate. Now what you said, Robbie, is very true, and the whole country is seeing it, this facade, that because Uh, Biden beat him last time. We should all assume that he's the best one to beat him this time. It's crumbling. It's crumbling. People understand that this is a very different election. As a matter of fact, I think this election is far more like 2016 than, than it is like 2020. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party is acting with the same arrogance that they did in 2016. Let the people decide. So what they have, their strategy clearly is to attack Dean and to invisibilize me. And a lot of people are seeing this, and if they think that this is going to work in the general, people are seeing what's going on. Um, and uh, I, do, I can't speak for the Dean campaign, but I'm not going quietly into the night. I know what is uh, at stake here, just as they do. So does everybody. They're not the only ones who recognize there's a risk. I'm not, uh, I, 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 I'm not doing this because I don't recognize Uh, what a risk there is in in a Trump uh, reelection, I'm doing this because the fascists are at the door. Um, Every bit as much as as, uh, Joe Biden is, and those of us who disagree with them uh, are just as smart as they are, and just as sophisticated in our political analysis as they are. If they were so smart, we wouldn't have lost to Trump the first time.
1: Hey, Marianne, you very notably have maintained a consistent lead over Dean Phillips, uh, he, despite he being one of the many candidates who is able to sort of independently fund. Uh, he's a multi, multi, multi uh, millionaire. You have a uh, candidate like RFK Jr., who is the beneficiary of a multi million dollar super PAC. Um, and despite all of that, uh, you continuously outpoll relative to Biden the people in the Republican side of the primary race that are considered to be real contenders, the Vivek Ramaswamis of the world, the um, Nikki Haley's of the world, et cetera. And despite that, you have still been facing what can only be described as a blackout from mainstream corporate media, including the, li- the liberal media, which ostensibly should be more politically aligned to your effort. At the same time, you see these mock debates with- between people like Gavin Newsom, who's not even a candidate, and Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. So I-, I wonder what you make of that. And if you've ever um, made an effort to reach out to see if someone from the other side of the aisle, who, again, are polling very similar to you in their respective field but getting a lot more media attention would be willing to sit down and have a debate with you you versus
4: nikki haley you versus vivek ramaswamy
1: who again you out poll
4: that's really interesting like i should contact nikki haley and say hey let's have a debate it might not even be such a terrible idea there's a political media industrial complex And they don't just chop wood and carry water for huge corporate forces who are economically tyrannizing this country. They are huge corporate forces that are economically suppressing uh, the will of the people. They have the money and they have the power to decide who's in the conversation and who's not in the conversation. It's a form of candidate suppression. And candidate suppression is voter suppression, in my mind. Now, this is the thing. You're right, with all the money that they have I'm polling higher. Our little campaign, I used to say it was like the little caboose, like the little engine that could. We're running on fumes compared to what these people are uh, have in their coffers. And yet, look what's happening in the polls. And that is because when we're heard, when people have the opportunity to hear me, when fairy dust isn't being thrown in their eyes in the form of smears and mischaracterizations that make people not even want to hear me, or when people actually get the news that I'm around, we're the ones getting standing ovations in a way that you don't normally see in political rallies. Um, and that's why I'm staying in. And that's why I'm holding on. Uh, and that's why I, I do feel every day more and more people are waking up to what's going on here. And um, I, I just, I, I, I'm very, very sad for our democracy if we continue to allow This situation where Democrats are like lemmings running to the sea. Every day there's more news in terms of the president's disapproval ratings, in terms of his poll numbers compared to Trump in swing states, compared to Nikki Haley in swing states. This trance, it's almost like Democrats are in this, some Democrats are in this codependent trance. The DNC says, we're running Joe, we're running Joe. Like I said, that's beginning to to crack, that facade is beginning to crumble. But uh, it needs to crumble fast enough, and people like Joe Scarborough on uh, Morning Joe saying that there is no Democratic primary and other minions of the the Democratic Party who promulgate these lies. And these are lies. This is no different than Sean Spicer coming out and saying that we had the biggest crowd uh, of any inauguration, right? And then we showed the pictures, well, actually there were more at Obama's. Sean Spicer came back and said we had the biggest crowd. These are lies that people are promulgating, and um, it's wrong. It's a passive attack on our democracy, and more and more of us need to make that very clear.
0: Let's say you were the Democratic <laughs> presidential candidate, um, and you had to you know you have to make a case in swing states to moderate voters, voters who um, sometimes uh, independence people who have have voted for Republicans in the, fa- in the past, maybe they voted for Trump in 2016 or 2020. Um, w- what is your pitch, what is your policy vision for, uh, for winning a general election if you were the candidate?
4: We need to have an economic U-turn in this country, Robbie. This is not about right versus left. The real dichotomy is the power held in the hands of those who have access to capital and are given increasing access to capital versus those who are struggling to get by. And the majority of Americans are struggling to get by. That is what is really happening. All of us need to come out of our silos now. I don't care if you're on the right or on the left. It's a problem for you if you don't have health care. Whether you're on the right or the left, it's a problem for you if you cannot afford uh, for your kids to go to college or you cannot get out of these invisible chains that bind you in the form of these student loan debts. I don't care if you're on the right or the left, childcare is a crisis for so many people. And this is not a right, left, all of that is a canard. My, my, What I'm submitting to the American people is that we can start over, that we have had a 50-year chapter of American history it has been dominated by a principle that as long as corporate profits increased, that it was okay, it was considered okay by our Congress and too often our presidents to allow that principle to override the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. That is why we have carcinogens in our food. That is why we have PFAS, Forever Chemicals, in our water. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. You want to be able to feed your children. And this is what is happening in Washington. And they, who are part of that system, their idea of qualification is someone who will perpetuate and maintain that system. We, the people, need to intervene now. We need to cut the cord with that aberrational, economically unjust system by which Democratic principles and humanitarian principles have been superseded so that a small group of Americans who have money and, and, and are using the U.S. Treasury as their piggy bank, they should, they should be given uh, the same equal rights as every other uh, citizen of the United States. Right now, they're given far more rights, including economic rights, and I will be a president who stops that. We need to make an economic U-turn and a new beginning in the American people. And that's how we're going to beat the fascists. We are going to beat the fascists by offering to the American people a chance at a much better life. Universal health care, tuition-free college and tech school, the removal of those college loan debts, subsidized childcare, paid family leave, uh, guaranteed affordable housing, and a guaranteed living wage. All of those positions are considered moderate in every other advanced democracy, and they should be considered moderate in ours. So when Franklin Roosevelt said we wouldn't have to worry about a fascist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its promises, that is how we are going to beat the fascists in 2024. Not by warning people or scolding people, but by inspiring people and making it clear things can be much better if we pass these policies.
1: And, Marianne, from an international perspective, how would you uh, act differently (laughs) as president than Joe Biden uh, with respect to Israel and Gaza? Uh, Sixty-six percent of Americans uh, seem to support a ceasefire, and he's getting quite a bit of backlash uh, over uh, not just his continued uh, policies, but the United States' choice to continue to veto uh, uh, ceasefire resolutions in the U.N.
4: That, that veto was absolutely wrong. It did include release of the hostages. You know, in the last couple of days, it does seem like Joe Biden is sort of getting it, but he's not getting it enough. Uh, Netanyahu's policies are, are, are absolutely horrible here. This war is not doing anything except exponentially increasing the hate in that region. And it will, it, it is, it is, it's is continuing the downward spiral. Uh, we should not only be demanding a ceasefire. We should not only be demanding a release of those hostages, but we should be demanding an immediate architectural plan for a two-state solution. Not at the end of this, not at the end of this, but right now. Uh, we have a real problem, obviously, with some very, very right-wing forces in the Israeli government. But the United States, i certainly if I were president, I would be making it clear. The United States is not going to support this. Not because we don't support Israel. We do support Israel, and we support the Palestinians. Our highest alliance should be with humanity itself, with the safety and security and peace and sovereignty of both peoples. That is what the United States must stand for, and what is happening now is not helping us get there.
0: Marianne Williamson, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you. Tell
0: Story. So apparently, not just the orange man who's been posting mean tweets, it's also Bernie Sanders supporters. (laughs) A new book by Ryan Grimm, uh, former host of this show, uh, uh, reveals that Elizabeth Warren, you might remember that she was a candidate for the Democratic nomination in 2020 against Bernie Sanders, she tried to convince AOC not to endorse Bernie Sanders by compiling lists of supporters of Senator Sanders, their mean tweets, that Warren herself directed that a long list of those tweets be compiled into a dossier that her staff would give to AOC to persuade him not to endorse the man who's beloved by the Bernie bros. Um, I wonder how many of your mean tweets were in there. So (laughs)
1: specifically, I have Ryan Grimm's new book. And I quickly went to the page, uh, the relevant pages. And uh, my tweets were named among, I think, Nita Turner's tweets and David Sirota's tweets as the um, chief architects of the mean tweeting. I stand by all my tweets, Robbie. I have not deleted these tweets. You can go back and look for yourself. But I think that what we all now know from living on the internet is what people characterize as often as mean tweets are truthful criticisms of folks' own policies. And remember. This is at a time. This was okay. So this is uh, probably around the summer of 2019, because that's AOC endorsed, finally sided with uh, Bernie after the heart attack in uh, October. So it would have had to have been sometime before then when this lobbying was being done. And if you reflect back, this is a time at which Elizabeth Warren was dominating in the polls. So the best she did during that primary race was right. during the summer. she In was the national out, polls. Uh, yeah. yeah. In the in the primary polls. Yeah. yeah. And she was putting out a lot of policies that were very progressive in a more, I think, regular, regimented and well-produced way than was coming out of the Sanders campaign at the time. And the argument was, why stick with Sanders when you can have a female, younger version of Sanders who is doing a better job at the identity politics that were dominating, especially at the time, so much of Democratic Party Politics and that, if we read the the relevant pages in the book, is part of the broader argument that's being made that Bernie has a problem with black people, that Bernie has a problem with women, that Bernie bros are indicative of something about the man himself, and we saw this morph. The ap- apotheosis of this argument came out months later during the debates, where, if you recall, Elizabeth Warren made this charge shortly before one of the debates that Bernie had told her in a private conversation that women couldn't be president, that a woman couldn't win the election. And what happened at the debate was, instead of interrogating both Warren and Sanders about whether or not this was a factual reality, whether it was true that Bernie Sanders, who has been a long supporter, obviously, of women in electoral politics, actually said this—this is how the moderator, Abby Martin, phrased the question. She said to Senator Warren, CNN reported yesterday, and Senator Sanders and- um, Abby uh, Phillips, right? Sorry, Abby Phillips, what did I just say? Abby Martin. Oh, Sorry, not Abby Martin. Yeah. <laughs> Very different person, um, Abby Phillips. She asked uh, Elizabeth Warren, It's um, uh, asked Bernie Sanders rather, why did you say that? So she she framed uh, Elizabeth Warren's argument and said, why did you say that? Not, did you say that, but why did you say that? Bernie Sanders obviously answered, I didn't say that. Then she turns to Elizabeth Warren and said, when he said that to yeah. you, what did you think? So completely assuming the premise that of course it happened, there was a big outrage. So that's the kind of behavior Elizabeth Warren has been engaging in at the same time that she's accusing Bernie Sanders' surrogates of tweeting too meanly.
0: Um, that was a good example of a phenomenon that I noticed and really anyone paying remotely attention to the media coverage during Warren mania would have noticed is that she was the recipient of the most favorable media coverage, yeah. perhaps of any candidate in a primary sense ever. She was the choice of media figures, of journalists, of political reporters, wildly in favor of Warren, wildly biased in favor of Warren, which is why you saw so many stories attempting to delegitimize Bernie Sanders as her main rival by saying that, really by, by tarring, by guilt by association with um, supposedly um vehement vigorous angry tweeting type people um it never made any sense it was never well founded of course there were bernie sanders supporters who were very vocal and <laughs> and sending aggressive tweets i'm sure you were one of them uh there but they are, let me let let me finish okay all right there were also that was also the case for supporters of elizabeth warren and supporters of every other candidate uh, there are every there was no difference there just wasn't there's was never proven that there was a difference in the tone. From one group of supporters to the other. Certainly some engage in harassment or whatever, but it was not specific at all to Bernie Sanders. That's at least what I observed. And and trying to say that there's something uniquely wrong with this candidate's supporters, and that and also then that this has something to do with the candidate was just totally unfounded, and it was the media's favorite story for months.
1: Yeah, in fact, the L.A. Times finally, too late, but better late than never, did a deep dive into the kind of toxic fandoms of various candidates and found that the K-Hive, a K-Hive expose Mm. for those of you who are blessedly not as online, that's Kamala Harris supporters, were the most vicious by a mile, and yet they got absolutely no attention, even though some of the ringleaders in real life uh, met up with Kamala Harris's husband took pictures together. Kamala and her husband would tweet happy birthday to some people who had said some really vicious things about special needs kids and Sexual assault and like actually horrible things not political statements just horrible statements I I suggest everybody go and read that LA Times expose. It was really interesting, but one of the the, the, uh, More I don't know maybe perhaps surprising aspects of what comes out in this section of the book is that apparently AOC on some level had bought into some aspect of this narrative Ryan Grimm writes Uh, Ocasio-Cortez was worried about the toxicity too. Bernie's supporters have been very, very damaging to him—this is a quote from AOC—Bernie's supporters have been very, very damaging to him, and it's really frustrating to see and experience. They don't realize how influential they are. It's frustrating to feel like they are hurting him," she said at the time. I feel like Warren is scooping up LGBT LGBT progressives, women, and progressives of color because of how they isolate, and it makes agreeing with Sanders ideologically difficult, so it feels like they're forcing an unnecessary choice between class analysis and race analysis again, uh, through." their behavior, not so much policy, and it creates issues. Now, but for Bernie's heart attack, who knows where, what direction this endorsement could have gone in, um, because it does seem like she was legitimately skittish about an endorsement or association with right. Bernie Right, what it sounds
0: like is that the dossier of mean tweets almost worked. It almost worked. That was correctly, um, and I find it interesting that Warren or her backers um, thought, I guess correctly, that this was the right way to lobby AOC, not to say that... We're more committed, or have better plans, or will be more effective at bringing more likely it to out win. Progressive, you change, or, or any of that. Yeah. it's it. We're, we're gonna we're gonna frankly do like, yeah, race and gender based identity politics to guilt you out of this endorsement.
1: Yeah. Well, Elizabeth Warren ended up coming in what third uh, place in, in her, her own state. state of Massachusetts. That candidacy didn't go anywhere. It seemed like AOC made the right choice, but of course there was also reporting that uh, she seemed to have distanced herself from the campaign as it went on. Um, who, who knows what uh, to what extent? It was reported that it was the um, Joe Rogan pseudo endorsement that caused some of that skittishness, which is part and parcel of the same kind mm-hmm. of ethos that's that's happening here, right? Are your associates? too toxic are your associates of the wrong brand to be a part of this big tent political coalition that was supposed to be so revolutionary in in nature so really interesting stuff here i say to ryan grimm release the dossier we need to see these mean tweets we needed an an ability to defend ourselves against these accusations release the 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 dossier ryan more rising (laughs) right after this A Harvard graduate student wearing a keffiyeh, a scarf that is of Palestinian origin, says they were chased down and harassed on campus by the wife of Harvard Kennedy School professor and former Obama administration advisor Jason Furman. Let's take a look at this viral video. between you and people who wanted to murder you. Hi, camera. Thank you for walking through neighborhoods and making families feel unsafe with your, with your tourist scarf. Palestinian.
4: Palestinians felt pretty unsafe when Israelis occupied their country, you know.
1: I'm glad you're so proud of of,
4: of the slaughtering of civilians. I'm
1: not. You couldn't hear She said, uh, thank you for walking through my neighborhood and making me feel unsafe with your terrorist scarf. Glenn Greenwald weighed in on the whole mess, tweeting... If a Jewish student at Harvard wearing religious garb had been insulted and assaulted this way by the wife of a Harvard professor and former Obama official, it'd not only be national news, but both parties would convene congressional hearings about it. Who is unsafe in the U.S.? Now, this is the second time um, in less than a month that a former Obama official uh, has been caught engaging in behavior that many people are characterizing as uh, a I don't want to project my, my characterization onto it. But ex-Obama advisor Stuart Seldowitz, uh very famously was caught by a halal cart vendor in New York on several different occasions, different times of day, different outfits, on different occasions, uh, engaging in Islamophobic rants at uh, this halal cart vendor. I think we have a little bit of that footage as well as a reminder.
2: That, see, that just shows how ignorant you are, because, you know, Mohammed was a rapist. Says in the in the Hadith, in, o you know, in your holy book, o Muhammad.
5: What? O Muhammad.
2: Muhammad, your your prophet. You know who he is. My prophet? Yeah. He was a rapist. He raped Aisha. Does it say that in the Hadith or not? You know that? I just speak English. What? No English. You don't speak English. What do you speak? What do you speak? You speak Arabic, the language of the Quran. The Holy Quran that some some people use as a toilet. <laughs> what do you think of that? People who use the, the Quran
5: as a toilet. Does it bother you? <laughs> Does it bother you? Tell me the truth.
6: I don't speak English.
2: You don't speak English? That's too bad. That's why you're selling
1: food in a, in a food cart. Because you're you're ignorant. You should learn English. It'll help you. Of course. Now, Stuart Seldowitz, he served as deputy director of the U.S. State Department's Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs. He was arrested on charges of aggravated harassment after these clips came to light. Um, But many people are noting that this. Two is an, a coincidence, maybe three becomes a pattern. Is it surprising that so many former Obama senior advisors have now been caught engaging what, in what I would characterize as harassment of people because they are Arab or because they are presenting wearing Arab garb?
0: In the case of the guy at the, um, at the, the food cart, um, yeah, that's a pretty long clip where he clearly says... Uh, a lot of harassing things, and as you noted, the police have taken action, so that seems to be working itself out in a way that makes sense. As for the, the, the main reason we're talking about this, the, the clip of the, uh, the Harvard professor's wife, look, I'm just gonna say I am very reluctant to take, to judge, to, to evaluate and make any strong view on a 16-second a clip. Um, obviously you shouldn't say what we heard on that clip about um, so, so no one should be targeted or harassed or delegitimized for for the garb they're wearing for wearing uh, a Palestinian scarf and if it is as it appears that was a bad action. I don't know what preceded that clip I don't know what came after it. I'm very especially after the whole Covington kids uh, debacle from years ago I would I would just be I would be not. Willing at this point to give much of more of a of a opinion on it. It's not. I don't know. I don't know what happened up yeah. to there. I don't know. And you know, like people behave badly um, in public. They embarrass themselves. Um, you know, the kind of "Karen, speak to the manager" type thing. You know, we get now that we have cameras everywhere. We, you know, we see people get into fights over parking spaces and getting cutting in front of me in the line in the grocery store and. Um, you know what? It's it's nasty and it's ugly, and but I don't know that you know, sicking the entire world to condemn and destroy over it is always necessarily a good idea. I would like to see. I mean, I I, I would wonder what led up to this.
1: Well. Uh, I take your point, but I think there's also a lot you can analyze that's said by the woman. She articulates, uh, uh, Eve Gerber, she articulates her own frustration in the context of the video. Mm -hmm. So we're not just interpreting kind of a stare-off the way we uh, were with the Covington video. She specifically says, you made me feel unsafe by walking down the street wearing your terrorist scarf. So there's many components to that. One, the idea that the presence of another human being, she doesn't accuse her of protesting her house, of shouting at her, of menacing her. She says, walking down my street, wearing clothing that I identify with terrorism is making me unsafe. So the second part of that is obviously calling a scarf that is emblematic of the Palestinian freedom struggle and has no ties to terrorism, um, a terrorist scarf. It is that kind of conflating of what it means to be Arab or Muslim with what it means to be a terrorist—that I think is pretty foundationally a, a sort of a, a, a bigotry, and it's hard to really get around that. And I think the third piece of this, which has frustrated so many people, like Glenn Greenwald, is how quickly the kind of safetyism that so many people on the right—not that she's on the right—she again, um, her husband was an Obama advisor—but so many people on the right criticize at college campuses the idea that the presence of certain kinds of words or language for violence is now being really deployed to make the case that Jewish students or or Jewish faculty members or wives of faculty members apparently feel unsafe because of the mere presence of um, Arab students. We don't actually know the, the nationality of the woman walking down the street. She, she might not even have been Arab or Muslim at all. She could have just been wearing the kifia, which was being characterized as this woman as a threat in and of itself. And I think the concern is, is this emblematic of what's going on on campuses where we are having congressional hearings to talk about the safety of Jewish students. We are having um, vigils with congressmen uh, coming to... Uh, commemorate the deaths of one side of this, but not the other side of the horrible tragedies that have been unfolding in Israel and Gaza, and where we have had resolutions passed in the House to conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism and a resolution passed to censure Rashida Tlaib, At the same time that we have had three Palestinian-American college students shot, one of whom is paralyzed uh, completely from the waist down, and much, much less attention to that kind of violence or the harassment that this uh, young student uh, faced here on the street.
0: Yeah, just walking down the street does not make people... I mean, it doesn't matter if you feel unsafe. People have the right to walk down the street. So I too have despaired of the trend of uh, of safetyism being used uh, to delegitimize um, free speech. Obviously, we have a long um, history of that. Have surveys of college students saying, "Well, if I feel unsafe, then free speech no longer applies." Well, if it's hate, I support free speech. But if it's hate speech, then you know that could make someone feel targeted, and you know that going down the list of. Of gender reasons and sexuality reasons and race reasons. Um, this is a manifestation of that. But like I said, I don't know. It's a short clip. So there was a little bit of. Um, lot.
1: The, the, st- the young woman in the clip chose to remain anonymous. Um, but this is the testimony again. We'll see if Gerber has anything to say about this. Of course, we'll follow up. If she pushes back in any way, um, she deserves to be heard as well. But the additional context was th- as follows. Um, She's, the young woman says Gerber was driving when she saw her walking by in a kifia, got out of her car to follow her. The student felt compelled to share the video uh, after the horrific shooting of three Palestinian students um, in Burlington, Vermont. So apparently she was driving—it wasn't even that she was walking by her house, that the student was walking by her house or in her neighborhood. She was driving by and got out and decided to, to walk, chase um, behind uh, the Palestinian student. So, Do stick around for more Rising after this, and we'll be back with more updates on this story as they emerge.
0: Breaking news as the Supreme Court announces that some of the cases it plans to tackle in the near term include a case that will have broad implications for rioters present at the Capitol on January 6th and also for former President Donald Trump. So the justices agreed to review a lower court's ruling that revived a charge against three defendants accused of obstructing an official proceeding, referring to the disruption of the certification on January 6th of Joe Biden's victory. So that also could impact Trump. As we know, Special Counsel Jack Smith has brought an obstruction charge, two of them, against Trump. Trump's trial in that case is slated to begin March 4th, but the Supreme Court's decision to hear the case could impact Trump's trial start date.
1: Garrett Miller of Dallas, Joseph Fisher of Boston, and Edward Jacob Lang of New York's Hudson Valley had their obstruction charges dismissed, by a lower court, which the Biden DOJ then challenged. The Supreme Court is expected to hear the case in the next few months.
0: So this is very significant, um, deciding whether this uh, law against obstructing an official proceeding was correctly applied to many of the January 6 defendants. Uh, there are three specifically have brought this uh, legal action, but I, I think this this law has been applied to um, uh, ton, lots and lots of people, way beyond the, the three. And it has also been applied to Donald Trump. There are four indictments, there are four charges that are part of the Jack Smith indictment, and two of them are obstructing an official proceeding and conspiring with others to obstruct an official proceeding. So, if the Supreme Court rules that, you know, what that what the what the January sixth people did, uh, it, you know, might it might be it might violate other things. They might have um, engaged in assault or vandalism, but it, but their conduct was not—it was not obstructing an official proceeding, um, then part, then some of those charges could be thrown out, and then you'd have to consider, can you bring that an obstruction case against Donald Trump, who didn't even, who obviously Trump, <laughs> Trump didn't barge into the Capitol. He didn't smash your windows, go in, and physically... Prevent the proceeding. So I would think the case against him might be even weaker.
1: Well, it's important that the um, The law that is being applied here doesn't require the physical um, interruption of a proceeding So this was a law that was written in the wake of the Enron scandal the Washington support uh, Washington Post uh, reported just a few minutes ago So it's the corporate fraud accountability act of 2002 and it holds that anyone who quote corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use. in official proceeding a guilty. That's the phys- physical aspect. Or two... Otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, either can be punished. And so it's the otherwise word that's been in contention with um, uh, the lower court uh, being split on this issue, Uh, the majority deciding that the otherwise would apply to these more vague kinds of actions, but one judge, uh, Carl J. Nichols, ruled that otherwise could only refer to other kinds of document tampering, like specific kinds of document tampering, perhaps in a digital Mm -hmm. form or something like that. So the majority opinion uh, wrote that the Nichols ruling um, was a cramped, document-focused interpretation that ignored the plain meaning of the words in the statute. Uh, And this is the central issue that the Supreme Court will be taking up. Now, it's also really important to note that When this news first broke, I think that there was a a presumption that the Immunity question whether or not Donald Trump has presidential immunity question which a jack Smith is also trying to expedite is what's being decided here oh, it's that not, has not been taken totally up different. yet And that's the one that people feel might have a much more significant effect yeah. on whether tr- Trump will be found guilty of these more substantive crimes Yeah, I mean so this still will waiting af- on that.
0: Yes This will affect the prosecution of Trump though if it can't yes. I mean it affects yeah. it either way because either than those charges are legitimate or they might be significantly imperiled um, I don't know how this uh, works. Maybe you, you Certainly know more about this than I do. Your Harvard law degree. um, Could Jack Smith just you know drop those charges and then proceed with the with the others?
1: Well, there's no reason to do so prematurely. We'll see what the court says. Right.
0: No, I mean in the wake of if the if a court. Oh yes, that's
1: that's why you. you (laughs) Overcharge. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So again. You know, I, I don't know that this is going mm-hmm. to be devastating one way or the other. I think it will definitely be read as a victory and a vindication of Donald Trump if these are thrown out. And not to mention, this isn't just about Donald Trump, as no, the m- The out. more
0: significant outcome would be on, on uh, people who were convicted on right. that basis right. could get there. I mean, there are already people in prison who are in prison and, because and of I, that charge. I
1: do feel like that, I mean, subjectively, is the weakest of the charges. If you want to accuse somebody of... Um, trespass, if you want to yeah. accuse somebody of vandalism, I think those are all pretty straightforward. Yeah. But the connection between anything that happened on 1-6 physically in the building actually having the effect of obstructing the certification of the election, I think that's a long shot. It's less of a long shot for Donald Trump because, again, his charges are related to the longstanding, uh, the, the, the mm-hmm. preceding fraud over the course of the previous weeks mm-hmm. that is being alleged. But for the, the January 6th sure. rioters, that's, that seems thin.
0: Yeah. And again, this law was really specifically looking at, as you said, post Enron, preventing um, corporate entities from yeah. shredding documents.
1: FBI bangs in the thing. door, yeah, documents yeah, going to the shredder. That's what they were scene. trying to stop, which yeah. is
0: totally, totally different yeah. from this situation. So we will have to see um, what the Supreme Court um, thinks about this, um, if this, if it applies also in this case. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be very interesting. More Rising right after this. UFO whistleblower David Grush has doubled down on some bombshell claims, maybe the most explosive, being that the U.S. government has killed people who tried to go public with stories about non-human spacecraft, telling News Nation's Elizabeth Vargas last
4: night. Let's watch. You recently did an interview with Joe Rogan um, on his podcast, uh, and you said something that really took me aback. You said that you believed that the United States government has killed people for trying to go public with a story.
3: Really? Those are concerns that uh, certain scientists on the program that are known to me you know, presented that to myself, but I did direct them. Uh, to the appropriate authorities on that. That's something that I don't know firsthand. That's something they espoused, but because of the serious nature of that, you know, I directed them to the appropriate authorities, such as the Inspector General Staff uh, and law enforcement. So uh, I can't speak to that because that's something that they espoused and I directed them to the right authorities.
4: Other people were worried about that,
3: not you. I had some unique things happen in my personal life that, you know, were some of the causal factors for me to file a complaint, some things that my wife and I had noticed. Uh, some intimidation. I can't get into the exact nature. I I did provide that information to the inspector general and and hopefully they've referred it to appropriate federal law enforcement and counterintelligence personnel, but I can't uh, discuss that publicly because of the sensitive nature of that for my own protection and for the integrity of the investigation.
4: Yeah, because if you really believe that the government has done that in the past with people who've tried to expose this UFO program, why are you still alive? You've done more to expose it than anyone else.
3: Well, that's one of the reasons why I went public, and certainly I was shown that, you know, they can touch me at any time, and and that's what led me uh, to not only contact my former agencies, you know, counterintelligence folks um, with, uh, you know, what I witnessed, and I provided evidence to that fact, but filed the complaint, and uh, certainly going public was the appropriate move for me for my own protection.
1: Tucker Carlson recently spoke with redacted co-host Clayton Morris Saying he hasn't even told his wife that he's what he's learned on this elusive subject. Let's watch.
2: The second thing that bothers me is the UFO story, and. Uh- you know, the more you dig into that and talk to people with no, with actual knowledge of it, again, that's a, another story where there are some, you know, fanciful ideas floating around that are just, you know, there's no evidence that they're true. But if you talk to people who, you know, have actual knowledge of it that they gathered themselves, there are parts of that story that I do not understand at all that are really, really, really dark. It's so dark that I, you know, haven't told my wife about it. I mean, I, I haven't verified any right. of this, but this is not just stuff that I read on the internet. I know you all are very, very grounded in that story, so I think I know, you know what I'm talking about. But there's some stuff there that's just like, man, I'm not even sure what that means. There's a spiritual component there that I I don't fully understand. Um, So yes, that story bothers me. And I think, last thing I'll say, that one of the reasons that we've had all these disclosures and all these, what, 10 whistleblowers at this point, and it hasn't really become front page news. Part of it's suppression. You know, parts of the government don't want you to know about it, but part of it is the public can't deal with it. It's too far out. The
1: but some are critical of this particular exchange, saying Morris and Carlson never provide evidence, sources, or a reason for withholding that information. Mm. All right. Uh, so let's maybe go with the Grush, Grush. stuff. Uh,
0: right. So, so Grush is saying that he knows people who felt threatened for trying to come forward with information or even that people were killed yes. for doing so and then and Elizabeth Vargas said okay but that's not necessarily based on your experience and then Grush said well obviously he hasn't been killed he's alive he's testifying but he did fear he had fears for his um, for safety or for some kind of harassment yeah. based on on what he's doing
1: but based on what he's experienced he said they've shown me they can touch me they can right. they, they've shown me that they know how to touch me in, in my life
0: well, he now he might be referencing um, the fact that there was a lot of negative reporting about him. Actually, that the Intercept did. We talked to Ken Klippenstein about it. It was Ken's reporting on um, on his history of, uh, of I think it was a abuse substance and, abuse, and, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so he he might mean that they you know they tried to delegitimize me. They tried to smear my reputation for speaking up. Which is not do, do at you all think the that's same the same? As same. Being I mean, killed. that's no, I, no,
1: it's I not don't, not at all to minimize. The kind of coercive power of doing something like that, and certainly the government has demonstrated. The it's it has tremendous coercive. Yes, power. and the, the government has shown its willingness to do that in a million different ways: sending threatening yeah. letters to Martin Luther King, wiretapping him, all that—that that sort of thing. So I, do, I I credit that. At the same time, that wasn't exactly the question, right? What but Vargas was pushing him on is this. Idea that his life has been threatened and that other people's lives have been threatened to the point of actually killing them
0: Who's doing the threatening? And Who's doing the killing
1: and where and, and who is it that has been yeah. apparently killed by the government? That's that's a very yeah. serious charge I mean, we're we up until this point have been talking about a hunt for potential alien spacecraft and alien bodies Should this be a manhunt for human beings that have been killed because of knowing too much? Uh, about? I
0: want to know program? what agencies are responsible and then we need to hold them accountable if it is the case or we need to yeah. investigate them and find out it's BS
1: and he says, you know, I I I pointed them the, right. to the proper authorities, but but
0: uh, I, but, if the, but the authorities exactly. are the ones doing this. You're saying so. What isn't the proper authority? Public sunlight exactly. disinfectant. We need to know. At, at, at some point. You're you're going to be. You're not saying they're already out from your perspective. Your claim. They're already out to get you and your people for having this information. Isn't. You you need to get it out there.
1: Yes, and he says that about himself. Again, when Vargas asks him, well, what about your safety? He says, well, that's part of why I came forward. So there does seem to be a little bit of a gap between... Somebody's threatening
0: you, you're not safe. Like you're, you're not. As long as You've I satisfy them, you're already yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? So and then, further coming compliance is, is not... the safety,
1: and he says that about himself. Yeah. My, I came forward just there in that interview. I came forward in part because I felt threatened, and I'm, I'm less exposed. And if something happens to me now, it would seem suspicious. So why is that good for the goose, but not good for the gander?
0: Yeah, that's a fair question.
1: Um, now going on to the interview, the Tucker Carlson interview. There was a lot of insinuation, a lot of mm-hmm. and raised eyebrows and deep swallows, you know, gulps of, of trepidation. Is it misleading to have those kinds of interviews as a journalist? Well, uh, you know, without more, they they both basically mm-hmm. said in the clip that we watched, they they personally have knowledge of more. Much like Grush, they personally know more. Is it that Tucker Carlson feels threatened? He says it just feels—he said he characterized it as too out there to talk about. He didn't want to talk to, about uh, it to his wife because it was too out there. What does that mean?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I thought perhaps maybe he was just referencing, uh, you know, the the, um, the videos of unidentified aerial objects. Um, or maybe he's seen some of them that we have—the public's not seen or that maybe people like his guests have—, have Shared with him, obviously. I
1: that are that are too much to discuss with your wife.
0: I don't know. Um, Like he said, there's a spiritual.
1: He did a spiritual component.
0: component. I don't
1: know. I I mean, maybe seen something. Maybe seen something. There are people who think that there's a conflict between the idea that there is a god um, in any Mm -hmm. kind of traditional sense and aliens. Uh, What does that do to theological practice? If we are not. Mm -hmm. God's only people, do aliens have a different God? Is our God local? Um, Is he really omniscient? These are the kinds of, I think, uh, theological questions that aliens raise, and I I don't know if that's what he's alluding to. Well, that
0: depends on what your religion is, maybe. I don't know that it's a conflict with, um, I don't think aliens necessarily conflict with the Catholic perspective, which was the religion in which I was raised. I don't think so, because they could just be other sentient life could have been created by God as well or something like that. The Bible's just, for Catholics, the Bible is, a, is, not, is not the like, divine word of God. It's, just, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it inspi- it's inspirational stories for lessons. It's not. The, it the pope is the center of the, is the, is the authority on religious truth. And the, the debates around
1: things like evolution and dinosaur bones, those aren't implicated in Catholicism the way no. they are in some other religions. No. Interesting. All right. Well, let us know what you think about this one. How are you reading that Tucker Carlson interview and some of the insinuations? And what do you think is really holding Grush back? We want to know.
0: And do you support my plan to just figure out where the facility is, <laughs> where the, I'm going to do it? I'm going to do a January 6th on that facility that's hiding <laughs> the alien craft. We're going to we're going to march. We're going to take back our country with strength. Okay, Robbie. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll have all the hottest takes on the most important news stories of the day.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.